Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. What if you never try? One of the things that made me move to LA to pursue screenwriting was that my fear of not at least giving my dream a shot became greater than my fear of failure. Writer, director, actor Ellen Gerstein, who's been in everything and knows everyone, loves a good underdog story. Threads of inclusion and representation from her days as a student activist integrating restaurants in civil rights era Georgia to making films about neuroatypical people who just want love like the rest of us run through her life. Ellen talks with me about working with folks like Tom Hardy, Steve Carell, and Pamela Adlon, and her guiding principle, your choices are never going to make everyone happy, so you might as well get started on those dreams. And a correction, when I refer to straight women and transgender women, I should have said cis women and transgender women. Okay. <laughs> I've gotten so many, I've never gotten as many, um, responses from people going oh my gosh I love Ellen oh my gosh you're talking Are to you Ellen that's so great I love Ellen I met her here I'm so she, popular I know <laughs> I oh, obviously I met you when you came to my writing retreat in Italy I think the first thing people notice about you is just your spirit like you're bubbly you're fun to be around you're you're just like so positive about everything and that like and it comes across in your writing the things you choose to write about the people you choose to write about there's a real affinity for you know the underdog and like the the people who get overlooked so uh, how, how would you characterize yourself as a writer well you were doing just fine <laughs> <laughs> I just write about, uh, I guess, what I know about. And always, yeah, and always people that are on the edge of society or kicked to the curb, sort of, because um, I think it's very important to, and I like everyday heroes, you know, uh, that I love. And everything that uh, one woman show that I did was uh, of a homeless uh, therapist and, um who was, you know, trying to get back. So, and very brilliant, you know, never condescending to anyone just to show different sides of, of whatever character I'm uh, either writing or performing and um, things that you wouldn't expect. Maybe yeah. uh, the average person wouldn't expect, but I want to show them all the different colors and the sides of, of the character. Yeah. Well, we've talked about several scripts of yours now that um, deal with protagonists that have Down syndrome. Oh, yeah. I think is a very unusual, we don't see a lot of that anymore. They, there was, you know, Corky back in the 80s, right. 90s. Like, we, we haven't had a, a character, at least especially not a protagonist, in a very long time. So what... On the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, waiting for Ronald uh, that I did. This goes way back before anyone was doing this. Uh, and I got to sh shoot on 35, which was great. So it was a short film that I made waiting for Ronald. But um, my, uh, what I loved about it is I hired people on the spectrum and with Down syndrome, but with, do you remember Bruno Kirby, anybody? Yes. Yes. I yeah. Love and Bruno was the, um, 
the caretaker to them, you know, and they and uh, Ronald leaves uh, the institution where he spent most of his life to go out and meet his best friend who used to be in the institution. And they're going to share apartment and, you know, be part of society and have the same problems we do. Love, life, you know, all that. And um, so I had uh, the cast that I should have had. And it was fabulous. And they taught me and I taught them. And, and it was because I teach acting. So I uh, was teaching them acting and they did a fabulous job. It was um, Ronald and Edgar, and Ronald was really on the spectrum, but Edgar wasn't, but his character was. And it was so great how they learned from each other. It was just absolutely wonderful. Then I had uh, someone else who was um, autistic and someone with Down syndrome and stuff, but it, it just worked so beautifully. And um, yeah, won a lot of awards. And the best thing was, is... Um, uh, uh, I did a lot of um, freebies showing the film and having Jody, who would played Ronald, come and talk to maybe a, uh, a certain type of facility that had all uh, people that had uh, autistic or Downs or whatever, and their caretakers. And then I would have some of them do a scene from the movie and how would they feel and talk about it. And it was, wow. it was great because a lot of the uh, parents came up to me afterwards and said, I never knew Barbara loved such and such or whatever. They felt free to express. And that made me feel good. And um, so and then I never forget this. When I was shooting, this woman came every day we shot. We shot for a week with her two little boys. And um, so finally, uh, I said, well, why, you're here all the time. Uh, you're part of the the whole crew here, so have lunch with us. And she said, I'm here every day because both my boys are autistic. And I see that these adult people on the spectrum are acting. So it gives me more courage of what my sons could possibly do. It opens up a whole, oh my God, that made me cry. So it was amazing. good. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. What, what made you interested in telling their stories in the first place? Did you have someone in your life that... You know, it's funny. Uh, two things. I, when I was, uh, well, I'm still teaching, but one of the classes I was teaching acting and we were working on characters and one woman brought in a character, Connie, who was just a tiny bit slower than everyone else. She was just a little bit, you know, uh, out there. So, and, and when we were doing exercises and, and improvs, everyone sort of glommed on to her. She was like incredible. And I started thinking about that character. And, and I wrote a whole feature, Custody of Connie. And from that, I took out a piece for Waiting for Ronald to sort of have a calling card, you know, for that. And that was number one when I saw that. And number two is um, I had a cousin uh, who was autistic. And um, I didn't know him that well, uh, but when I met him, uh, you know, I saw him when he was little and then growing up and stuff, and uh, he never left home. And um, it just was interesting. It was interesting. I want to just tell you, uh, the, the fellow uh, Jody, who I'm still friendly with, who played Ronald, um, Ed Asner's son-in-law played Edgar, so that was pretty cool. But oh. um, Ronald, uh, uh, Jody, who played Ronald, 
he was really uh, more together than the rest of his family. He could have lived by himself or with a roommate. Um, uh, he was a little bit, uh, not really slow, but autistic, you know, had his problems, whatever. But his mother liked the way he shopped, paid for the bills, did all. So she wouldn't let him live by himself. Oh she kept telling everyone he can't live by himself. He'll never make it. But he really took care. The I think something was in the water. It was in Palmdale because the father, you know, something, something. The mother, something. The sister, da 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 da. And he really was autistic and stuff. But he was the most. Uh, he could handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but his mother liked that, you know, and um, uh, she wouldn't let him live by himself. And we became very close, Jody and I. Yeah, it was great. I yeah, well, I, I'm just it, it. It makes me curious because you know I didn't have a lot of people on the spectrum or with Downs in my life, and I my I'm my neighbor across the street in my old place had he has a son who lives with her who is who is has Downs and he was the first real exposure that I had. And it's like in terms of somebody that not just someone that you pass by, but someone that you're going to be interacting with socially. And I remember how I felt so uncomfortable at first. I just did not know how to talk to him. And, you know, once it took, you know, I had to learn. And like, once I kind of realized he's just like, you know, just like anybody else, he just wants to talk about what he likes and talk about stuff that makes him smile. And, you know, now I just adore him and I love being with him. And he's so fun to talk to because he's so, so positive like everything is so positive i think it's different now than years ago because it's more popular in the sense of tv film so you see it more you're more accustomed you become more at ease with it and uh, instead of people putting the person in the closet and not letting anyone meet their son or daughter now it's uh it's it's out there and it should be and it's uh you know, they're part of society. Everybody's part of society. Yeah. And so I think it's so different now. And I just love that. Well, it's, you know, I mean, it, it comes back to the question of representation, which is, you know, what we're dealing with as a society right now is representing people's voices that we don't hear and that, that everyone, ha- that they all have merit. And we want, we need to hear from people that, you know, we haven't heard from. Yeah. So that's a perfect Right, exactly. Sort of an example that I think people will forget about. But yeah. so tell me, tell me about your childhood therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh. your, your accent gives away a little bit where you grew Nothing up. Something to do with New York, perhaps. No, I, you know, I was born in the Bronx. I thought everyone was born in the Bronx. I didn't know that. But then um, my parents. Um, and my mother's family, she had a lot of sisters and brothers and stuff, all moved to Miami. So it was like the Bronx is now in Miami. And so I really just knew New Yorkers because that was my whole family. We all talked like that. That's how they talked. And I thought everyone's, my mom would go, you want some coffee? (laughs) Nobody knew what she was talking about. Anyway, so I was raised in Miami. I did not like Miami. And uh, Miami, uh, huh? It's humid. It's it. Beside that, so um, beside that, 
when I was there, it's, I don't, it's different now. I mean, I'm going back, you know, thousands of years, but it was very, uh, their thinking was very small town. You know what I mean? And I didn't like, and it's, a, it's not a small town. Right. But I didn't like the thinking. I didn't like how, I just didn't like it. I, I knew I didn't belong there. But my entire childhood, I showed horses and actually was Florida State champion for many years for five gated and reserve champion for pleasure. Woohoo! Wow. So um, that, yeah, I was the youngest one. I still hold that, that I was the youngest for three years to win that. But that was my life, horses. You know, I was very shy. And so horses was my, I know, could you die? So, um, right. So for, I was very shy. And, uh, and then I had to get out. And uh, so I left uh, to go. I had to go to a school that wasn't expensive, but I had to leave home. I had to, I said. I, I feel so, you. Same you thing. Know. Well, my, my sister had a lot of, my sister was manic depressive and it was very uh, hard life uh, with the family. So um, anyway, so I went one state up. I'd never been to the real South because, you know, my whole family was New York. I went to Georgia. Now that was an eye opener, can I tell you, back in the 60s. I went to Georgia and it was like, where am I? So right, my first roommate came in and went, Shug, I've never seen a little Jew girl before. So I was like, oh, this is fun. I said, well, you see one now and she's alive and I want to stay that way. Her uncle, no, her, her uncle or father was a member of the KKK and she kept inviting me to dinner. I knew I was going to be dinner. So I said, oh no, so right. So it was pretty, um, it was pretty, and my dorm, these are things I remember. I majored in sociology because I love the study of groups of people. I, I love to study people. But anyway, I remember my dorm mother, uh, Mrs. Miller, blue hair, very Southern. And I remember when she said, Ellen, so she said, you and Susie, you're going to be over near the Negress because you know how noisy you are. I said, what is going Anyway, so that was my introduction. And when I was there, they still had places that were segregated and uh, that did not sit well with me. And uh, so I started this uh, Georgia Students for Human Rights. And um, there was a bunch of us and we would go and like integrate a restaurant or, uh, you know, those drive-in restaurants and um, with uh, the uh, blacks could serve you, but they can't eat in there. We didn't like that. So uh, we would go in and sit in the whole restaurant, you know, and nobody else could come in. So anyway, let me just say Athens, Georgia did not like me. So, right. So, um, you know, it was like, you're, you're not supposed to um, wear big earrings or you're a whore. You know, these type of things. I mean, what kind of thing? You know, you can't wear sandals. That's what they say. Of course, it didn't bother me, you know. You're not supposed to this and you're not supposed to that. And ladies this and lady, you know, no. So I, uh, wow. yeah, yeah, wow, exactly. But you know what? It was a tremendous learning experience. Well, it's, it's a lot of ways of controlling women. And controlling behavior. Behavior. And it's all tradition directed. 
Now, I'm not putting that down. It's just a different way of thinking where, where like a friend who was from Georgia, I would ask them something and they go, well, my daddy says, you know, that's how it was very traditional yeah. you know, type of thing. And um, so that was that. I was lucky to get out alive. And <laughs> it was, yes, right. I'm not kidding. It was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. But you can't live there. Did you ever get arrested for doing like, Sit-ins yeah. and integration and yeah, I was arrested. Um, I was arrested in Georgia. Uh, yeah, I was arrested. <laughs> I've been arrested here. Yeah, wow. And I've been arrested in Georgia. And um, congrats. You know, when you're arrested in a small town in Georgia or whatever, no one will know where you are. You can disappear, and that's it. You know. So um, I I wanted that one phone call that they hadn't heard that rule that you get a phone call. So, um, but oh, finally, God. finally I, I, I called and stuff and this and that. So, but oh, I hung out with, believe it or not, there were a lot of New Yorkers there because it was an inexpensive out of state uh, school and they did have some good departments. So uh, we would, you know, <laughs> I just have to tell you this. So um, I would go with, with this guy named Cubby and his friend, Howie, they were from New York, very New York. So my friends at a first date with Howie came back and she goes, I'll never date that guy again. So I said, what's wrong? Well, when he got out of the car and I waited for him to open my door and he just yelled back, what's the matter, your arm broken? So <laughs> to open the door. So I said, yeah, <laughs> New York. Yeah. <laughs> right. Different. But I, I did like uh, the School of Sociology. You know, I, I got my degree in sociology. You were going to be a therapist. You were a therapist. But, uh, well, that was sociology. I was a, a um, caseworker for the Department of Welfare for New York. I moved back. Wow. I moved to New York, yeah. And so I worked for the Department of Welfare for many years. And um, But you know what? I wanted to be an actress. What happened? So... But I was I was raised to be, you know, have some secure job. I'm working for the city, you know, civil service. They can't off you. And I, you know, and I really always wanted to help people. And I remember when I came up to New York because I wasn't raised there. And I remember I I like to live in the East Village anyway. So um, some guy was laying like in the uh, gutter and he looked dead. So I ran up to the cop and I went, hey, there's a dead man over there. You've got to come. So the cop comes, kicks the guy. The guy goes, oh, he goes, he's not dead. That was, that was my introduction to moving to New York. I was like, oh. Anyway, so I worked for the welfare department and I made, we had to make 100 visits a month. And um, That's a lot. A lot, yeah. And some of them, I didn't realize a lot of the caseworkers were at the movies when we were supposed to make visits, but I made visits. And so um, anyway, so I made visits and I, I really liked the job. And uh, but I really wanted to be an actress. But anyway, so there I was in therapy. Come on. So, right, so, uh, so I'm in therapy with Dr. James Spingarn. And he's and I said about being an actress, I said, but what if I don't make it? What if, you know, what if nothing happens and what blah blah blah? And so um he said, listen, 
What if you're 80 years old and you say, I wish I had tried that. I wish I had done that. I wish I had followed my heart. What about that? So then I went home and I had, I call it the phone call home. Oh, dear. I'm quitting my civil service job. And and I'm now going to be a barmaid. And I don't even drink, so I know nothing about drinks. And because I'm going to be an actress. So this is what I heard for 20 minutes from my mother. (laughs) (laughs) My father was on the other line. I'll say something. Then they would talk. I I didn't even get to talk to anyone. Tell her something. Did you hear what she said? She said she's going to be blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so then I became a poor maid and I went to Lee Strasberg and studied acting and I would be six months in LA and six months in New York because that's how he was. Six months LA, six Uh. months New York. So I, for like four years and then I, you know, L.A. had like flowers. <laughs> we have flat, we got sunshine. We have, you know, and, and it's not muggy. You know, stuff that I hadn't seen. Really nice stuff. So, and uh, I actually got uh, arrested for loitering because I was walking to someone's place, and uh, and uh, this cop stopped me, and I said, "Here's the address where I'm going." I was lost and um, walking and. He was pretty nasty, you know, so it's pretty nasty. So, but anyway. So he did not help you find the address, I'm guessing. No, he did not help me find the address. So, um, yeah, no, he thought. Protect and serve. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, so then I stayed here and a member of the actor's studio and, you know, kept studying my acting and uh, I still go over there uh, all the time, so. I mean, not right now because no one goes anywhere. Right. I go from my kitchen to the living room. I think I've traveled. So, <laughs> so, but then, and then you have this amazing string of like the people that you've worked with, the plays you've been in, the movies that you've been in. Like, what, what, like, what was your first role? Oh, this is funny. Okay. That's well, why I, I asked. First of all, <laughs> I've worked with great directors, really wonderful directors. And I um, and uh, also made uh, made uh, another movie with uh, that I directed and was in. Come away with me. Um, do you know Charlie Robinson? Probably if you saw his face, he's in everything. He was in uh, Night Court. Oh gosh, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, he played that part. Yeah. Anyway. Oh yeah, the big tall guy. Yeah. <laughs> he was so sweet. I know he still is. Anyway, so uh, that was great experience. But I've worked with um, the first, okay, let me just tell you the first job I got. The first job I got, it was called Jokes Your Folks Never Told You. And it was a feature film of um, Dirty Jokes. And so- uh, Sounds amazing. And I auditioned for the teacher. I was the only one dressed from here to whatever. (laughs) Everyone else had things hanging out. Anyway, so- I went and auditioned. I was very nervous. And I had to tell these horrible jokes to kids. So anyway, so then I went to um, Rachel, who was a psychic in Simi Valley. And everyone was going to her. She was like the, the person to go to. So I went there and she said, when you leave here, check your service. Remember the service that you would call in and oh, yeah. answer and you'd say, do you have any messages? And they would go, no. And then you want to kill yourself. 
Anyway, so she goes, you better call in before five o'clock. You have the job. But after five o'clock, they're going to go to the next person. I said, you're kidding. No. So I had to find a pay phone. Nobody had their own phone then. This is back in the 1800s. So I found the pay phone. I called up. And sure enough, you're not going to believe this. And it's the truth. My message. I finally got a message. First of all, my message was, please call before five, the production company. And when I called, they said, you have the part. So and then I told Rachel. I know, go Rachel. And then I told my mother, I got to film. I got to film. It's all about teachers. So, so, but anyway, it was, I, I guess, on the bit of a dirty side. But um, a that, little was, bit. that was my first film. Did And like, was there a point where your parents were like, okay, we get this choice. Like, we're proud of you. Or were they always like, oh, my God, what have you done? Oh, my God, what have I done? So my mother said, this is my next phone call. You'll appreciate. My mother goes, okay. You've done your thing. Now you come home. So I've done my thing. Come on home now. You did it. Okay. Big, big deal. You did the acting. You did the acting thing. So um, you come home. You'll do a little small uh, play once in a while. It'll be fine. So so, no, they still, they never, they loved my films. You know, uh, they didn't see the second one, but the first one. And, uh, but no, they weren't, uh, wow. well, they were very happy. I, you know, I had did a million things, even though I was still an actor. I remember when, um, I, I wanted to go back. I'm not sure I wanted to go back to school or I thought that might be a good thing. I went back for a graduate degree. I went to Antioch and I remember saying my heart's dying because I really am the type of, you know, sociology, psychology, Mm. helping people. My heart's dying because nothing wrong with being an actress, but I missed, you know, you have to be a little dramatic because, you know, that's, they'll take you or they won't take you. So if you want to get in, you better, you know, pump it up. So I did this whole thing. I get accepted. The moment I get into uh, class, I get a play at the Mark Taper. Hey, goodbye, Antioch. So, I, so then I just said, listen, can I write a paper about the study of groups in our rehearsal? You know, I turned it around. They said, yes, you could do that. So Very but, clever. Yeah. So, so, but I got the graduate degree in psychology. And, um, you know, it's so funny. You see yourself on every page or your family. Oh, my God. You know, I'm like this. So, and then I did therapy for six years. I got to just tell you this. So really, you learn from your clients and the clients learn from you, you know, if you're open and a good therapist. So uh, one day, a fellow who was my client um, came in, didn't talk. And, you know, you don't really lead a client. You wait to see what they say, no matter what. So I'm telling you, time is going by. I'm getting older and he's not saying a thing. So I'm just, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, finally, oh, it must have been a half hour. He says, are you my therapist or are you a a reform school uh, buddy for Rhea Perlman on on, uh, Cheers? Because that's what I played. And it was played that week. I was tough, tough. I was supposed to be, oh, my God, I wanted to kill myself. But... 
I said, you know, uh, I said, did that bother you? He said, I'm laying in bed with my girlfriend and this tough chick gets on the TV. And I say to her, that's my therapist. So he goes, right. But I learned, I said, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up. Of course, inside I'm going, whoa, no, I'll kill myself. But outside I said, I'm really glad you brought that up because you're teaching me that when I start with a client, I've got to tell them, I hope they do see me on TV or in the movies because if they don't, I'm not working, right? So I said that, but I do do that. If that bothers you, let's talk about it or I'll refer you to someone. So you just taught me that and I thank you. Meanwhile, I want to kill myself, but other than that. Now I'm going to have to look up that episode of Cheers. <laughs> it was fun. It was I love fun. it. Like, what, what are your favorite roles that you like? What are some of your, well, you know, I'm, I really like characters like, you know, um, played a schizophrenic homeless lady. I love that type of stuff, you know? And, uh, I played, um, on shameless. I played really tough. Um, you, I, I play. I used to play a lot of toughies, but I'm a little short, so they lots of times go for a, a bigger type. But I did play a lot, and I love Shameless. I had a shotgun. I was gonna say, is that the one we had the shotgun at the door? Yeah. If I don't put conditioner on my hair, I can get a tough part because my I don't have to do anything. My just come in and they're like this, and then I got them. I like the type of parts where people would think, oh, you know, she's a this or she's that. And I show a different side. It's got to come through, you know? Yeah. Uh, I like that. So, um, well, it's, it's because when we talk about character development, we talk about the mask verse and then like what really is making the person who, what they really want and all yeah, that. So that subtext. Oh, it's so fabulous. And so I, I did play a um, Irish private duty nurse, uh, to John Glover at the taper, and I had to have an Irish accent. When I auditioned for that, um, I ha- <laughs> I'm not the greatest with accents, except Southern I can do and New York. And- In between, not so much. So I had to do an Irish accent. So I started off with an Irish accent, which then went to a Rosanna, Rosanna Dan <laughs> type of accent. Oh, no. And then went to an accent I had never heard in my life. It must have been an alien accent. And I said, I know. so the casting person's right there and the director. And I said, hey, you get three in one. So right now, I, could, I don't want to say I can't do it, right? Yay, you get three accents in one, three characters. Can you do better than that? I got the part. Then I had to go get an Irish accent, you know, that, that last pick one up at the store. <laughs> I went to uh, this fellow that everyone went to for accents. So I forget his name. He passed. Oh, so, yeah. So I just like those offbeat types of characters. Yeah. And um, I usually do comedy, but I really like drama, you know, both. I say this all the time in our, in our classes and stuff that I feel like writing is therapy because as we pull these characters out of ourselves and look at them in all these different facets of what makes them tick and why, it's always ourselves. It's facets of ourselves, you know? So it's like, we're doing our own therapy by writing. And then I would imagine acting is similar. We're, you're, you're dealing with yourself, right? It's fabulous. It's just, I love it so much. Uh, I did stand up for, for about six, seven years. That's tough. I loved that a lot. And I was very good with that. And I had to make a decision whether I go forward with stand up and, um, 
I, I did middle stand-up, like not a, a beginner, a, a middle one, and then there's the headliner. So either I go ahead and be a headliner and somebody that was pretty cool wanted to manage me. But I'll tell you, I really, not that I wasn't good at it and didn't like it, I liked it, but I really uh, want, I'm an actress. And so uh, most stand-ups want to be an actor. Uh, and I was older and you have to be on the road to, to really, and you have to do it every night to, to get your craft right. You know, yeah. and you have to stay in the clubs for hours and hours and you have to be friends with the guy that, uh, um, uh, puts you up, you know, cause you don't want to go up at one in the morning and, and have one person go, yeah, be funny. <laughs> so, you know, so after a while, I just had to make the decision that I just, I direct, act, and write. That's it. And teach. That, I, I get that. Like, I've always thought I have the, I, I would love, but for my need to go to bed early, I could be a rock star. That's the only reason I can't <laughs> is because I cannot handle the late nights. But it was fun. It was fun. And uh, then I had an antique store I while I was still an actor and a therapist. <laughs> and I cl we closed the store at five and then I would have my clients come to the store to have a session. And then do they get a discount if they bought something on the way out? No, but there was this one fabulous chair, very nurturing. You know, the flowers, the old time uh, flower print and everything. It was a great chair. Then I sold the chair. And the next week when my client came, we had to discuss how I didn't have the chair anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> she wasn't sitting in the chair and she was upset. So we had to discuss that. It was pretty interesting. So I know. love it. What do you like? What I would say, which do you like more or what do you like differently about each thing in between writing, acting and directing? It's really to me uh, a lot similar in the sense of you really have to know the characters whether you're directing it, writing it, or acting it. And you have to know the subtext. You have to know uh, before a scene, the moment before. You, you just really have to get under the skin of those characters. Yeah. So there's a lot that's similar. But um, I like to, um, like I like to direct because if I've written it, especially, uh, I want to direct it. So, uh, but I'm very democratic. I can hear what anybody tells me, and then I'll do whatever I think is right for the project. But I like directing actors because um, I am an actor, and I love actors with that. Yeah, I love I love directing actors too. I love I love seeing them do their work and figure out the the, the characters and like do the craft. And you know, it's I always said it's like a as a writer and a director you you, you know, it's like you write the symphony and you think, you imagine, oh, the, 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 the violins are going to sound like this and the piccolo is going to sound like this. And then you give it to the actor and they put all this stuff that you could never have imagined. Exactly. And I feel like it's that moment of discovery as a director where you're like, oh, you just did this thing. I never would have thought of. That's so great. I know they'll bring some, listen, that's their job to bring something to it. If everyone did it the same, you would audition only one person. So it's just great what, what someone can do with it and add to it. And I respect that. So, you know, yeah. So yeah, I love directing and I must say writing 
once I sit down to actually do it, I'm, uh, I really get carried away in it, you know? And um, yeah, but a lot of times starting it is hard. Is it hard for you at all? Um, Start or no? I mean, finding the time, yes. And then, yeah, there's just all that, you know, as you know, all the foundational work that we have to do first, all the character work and all the structural work that isn't the fun part but you can discover things like, you know, you can okay. discover, Oh, that's why she's afraid of this commitment thing. Right, and right. stuff comes out that like, you know, and then, yeah, like once that's all done, the pages are fun. It is fun, isn't it? Yeah. And they sort of take you, you know, it's not like you, you think you're controlling, you're not. The characters take off and, yeah. and just do their thing, you know? And I know, do you do, do uh, whoever's a writer, do you see it in your head? Cause I see the the scene, yeah. is that oh, yeah. yeah, and um, it just sort of goes, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's fun. It's like you're along for the ride when it when you're when you're in the zone. And I think that when you write something, you can tell right here. You can feel it if it's not right for that character. It just it's yeah. like ooh, you, it makes you go backward, like ooh, yeah, and uh, yeah. So that's what I love, you know. When I it's working. <laughs> I love yes, when it's working. Yes. Now, yes. I, I have to ask you, tell us about working with Tom Hardy. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. I'll tell you about this. I did an audition, a, a taped audition. So I go and I'm this woman with a dog. And uh, so, and uh, like, I, where will I find that motivation? Yeah. So, you know, I just substitute the dog for my dog and blah, blah, blah. Barbie. So I had a lot of fun with it and I just let it go. You know, it's not like a huge part, but I loved the character. Uh, her husband was in the hospital and she wasn't supposed to bring a dog to the hospital. The doctor had told her no and she's still there. And then the dog tries to attack the dog, whatever. So uh, my dog was upset that she didn't get the part, though. That was hard. But anyway, my uh, agent in Georgia calls me and she goes, can you come in for a callback? It's, it's a small part. I'm not flying to Georgia for a callback. If they can't tell on that tape, I'll tape another one. I'd be happy to, but I'm not flying to Georgia. It was a great tape. I'll do another one. That's it. So she was a little upset. So I said, just tell them I'd love to do the part. If they want another tape, fine. I'm not coming to Georgia. That's a lot to ask. So I know, but they don't care. What do they care? No. So of course, then they gave me the part which I thought was very smart. So um, now listen to this. So I said to my agent, what's the name of this film? She goes, I don't know. It's a little indie film. She gave me some name. I forgot what it was. I said, a little indie film. Who's in it? She goes, they won't tell me. This is what happens now. They don't want to say anything because everything's leaked out. Uh, they don't tell me. I said, they don't tell you who's in it. Nothing. Can I have a script? They're not giving a script out. Jesus, I'm going to Georgia to do, well, I really don't know what I'm doing. So, right. So I get to Jackie, Jackie Birch. I don't know if you know her anyway. Uh, wonderful uh, casting director. So I get to Jackie's house and Jackie's got to know everything all the time. I love her. So she's like the CIA. So she goes, what are you doing? I give her the name of this. I said, some indie film. I, I, I swear I sound like an idiot. I know nothing about it, but I'm here and I'm, I'm going to work on it tomorrow. I got to go there early. Uh, where? I said, they didn't tell me the address yet. I sounded like an idiot. 
So two minutes, she goes over to the computer. She comes back. It's a huge movie. It's Venom and a Tom Hardy's in it. What? I said Tom Hardy. Love him so much. I can't stand it. If you ever saw Warriors, uh, Warrior, uh, unbelievable film. Oh, my God. He's so good. I just want to cry. Anyway, so I went, Tom Hardy. It's worth the trip. So anyway, so I spend the whole day with Tom Hardy. And Who I love you so much. We just had a little room to wait between scenes and stuff. So we talked. Plus, my girlfriend, you know, Mimi, had directed him in one of his first movies in Australia. And so I called Mimi and she talked to him. She said when she directed him in Australia, she said to him, because, you know, he was a uh, heroin addict, so he has sort of bad teeth. Anyway, so she said to him, you get your teeth fixed, you'll be a big star. He never got his teeth fixed. He's a big star. So she's, it was unbelievable. He's a short guy, which is great. And he's got a really nice build. He is so nice, very hyper, but mm. very, very nice. And, um, and I likes to explore. He kept telling the director, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. Let's, wow. okay, so I'm going to hang from the, you know, you could tell the director was a little tired, but, um, but he was very sweet too. And I had a marvelous time. And I just told the director that I showed him a picture of my dog, Frankie, and said, Frankie is so pissed that she didn't get the part to be my dog. So we just had a good time. And Tom Hardy was the nicest the night and really nice to look at all oh, yes. day long. So, well, so sweet. He called it. his wife all the time. Oh. Loved it. What? Well, and I love that. It must be so fun as an actor to be working with an actor who's like, let's play, let's try things. I know. I know. So um, I've, I've worked with some really good, wonderful uh, actors and directors, and it is so much fun. Yes. So much. I worked with James Franco. I played his agent when he did the James Dean uh, story. Oh, right. Yeah. I worked on Raging Bull in 1805, and uh, just to watch everything was incredible. I bet. And, oh, the directing and how uh, they, De Niro would do the fight scenes and all that type of stuff was fabulous. That's so, amazing. Yeah. The other thing about what well, I just want to touch on, on Warrior, um, uh, it is, as you know, one of the few examples that we give in classes about, it's one of the only true examples of a dual protagonist film. There are really... Very few where people are like, well, that one has multiple protagonists. And it's like, no, when, when you drill right down, you really can say, no, that person's the protagonist, that person's the antagonist. But Warrior, they are both the protagonists. And it's literally the only successful example I can think of where the, where the writer pulled that off. And you don't know who is the protagonist until the very end when it's because you're rooting for both of them so equally. And it's not until the very end because they both want it so badly, but the person who needs it is the one who wins. That's true. And that's when it's like, oh, oh that's true. It's such a well-structured it, script. It's it is. so well plus, plus, it's so lean. There are so many scenes where there's no dialogue or tiny little bit of dialogue. And that's so beautiful. The yep. behavior that says it all. And what's the exercise I just made you guys do? 
I know. Write, write a scene with no dialogue. You write one of your dialogue-heavy scenes with no dialogue, and that's the why. best. I, I learned so much from, remember I called you, I said, I'm so excited. All this behavior came out. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. We, we we're very verbal people. I mean, you and I specifically, but also humans in general. And as writers, we want to put word, we want to give our people words. And it's like some half the time, if we can just step back and don't put words in their mouth and let them behave, the things that come out are just okay. gold. Yeah. It just, that was such a great exercise. Oh my God. But that, that uh, film is unbelievable. So good. And Nick Nolte, how fabulous he was. In fact, my favorite scene didn't have any lines. When Nick was drunk and he comes in, Tom, and, and holds him like a... Yeah. It's, oh, my God. Yeah. I, told, I told Tom that. I love that scene so much. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love that he always brings his dog on the red carpet. What yeah. I mean, don't get better than that, for God's sake. So, um, before we open it up for any Q and a, um, what would you tell yourself if you could talk to your 13 year old self Uh about what she needs to know about all this that's coming her way? What would you, what would you have wanted to know? What would you tell her? Um, I would say you don't have to make anybody happy with your choices except yourself. So I think some of the things I did do. I would have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have, uh, I would have done the acting earlier. Yeah, you know, writing earlier and doing all that earlier. But I, I, I'm glad I found it when I found it. You know, but I, I would say, uh, you're never going to make your mom happy. So just do what you want to do. For God's mm-hmm. sake. Isn't that a thing though? Like I kind of, I love that because I wish, I wish I'd started much earlier on my dreams uh, as well. But, you know, um, but then now I can bring to them all the things I learned when I wasn't doing them. Right. Um, and yeah, that if I'd known, you know, knowing that you're not going to make us a, a parent happy or a person happy is just, and then like, Hey, if it's never going to happen. Now off. Yeah. But move also- on. Also, you, I learned something that was very important, and that success is doing what you want to do. You, yes. it, it really isn't about the money in the house, although I'd like a bigger house with a yard and a pool. But, the house um, is adorable, and I love it. But just the fact that you do what you want to do, that is success. And that was from my therapist, Dr. James Spingarn. <laughs> <laughs> nice way to bring it full circle. I do love that. And that's like, you know, when I get frustrated and like, I haven't, you know, I don't have that Oscar for writing. I don't have the, you know, the big sales of, you know, I'm not a famous writer for, oh, you know, that, that thing that won the thing last year, that was my writing or, you know, all of that, where I think that's what success looks like, but you're right. Like the incredible privilege I have of, I get to do what I want. You think of all the people that are in jobs that they don't like, but they have to be. Maybe they gave up their dream of whatever. They have a family. They're responsible. So many things, or they're taking care of whoever, and they can't do what they want to do. You think of all those people. I feel so bad for them. And I I have to really enjoy that I can do what I want to do. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And that's the thing. Like I'm pretty sure if we lived in Afghanistan, we would not – 
have the luxury of doing what we want to do. Hey, you um, keep right here and you cannot have the luxury. Of doing that's it. true. And just to keep that in my mind every day, I was like, no, this is what success looks like. And I am incredibly exactly. lucky. Exactly. I yeah. think it's a big, big deal. Does anybody have anything they want to ask Ellen about or? Well, I actually, while we were, you were talking, I, I looked at your reel. I, the first scene, I remember that scene from the morning show. I love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fun to see that that was actually you giving him a... All right. Oh, that was so funny. He was great, Steve Carell. I said, after I called you a rapist, I had to call my therapist. I felt so bad. So, right. <laughs> so how did you book that? Like, oh, uh, actually, to be honest... Um, uh, Mimi Leader produces and directs that show and she's been a friend of mine for 37 years and she said look I hate to ask you this because it's like one word but how are we going to make it work I know you could make it that like a scene and make it work I said I don't do those uh, small parts I love you to death she's one of my best friends she said it's with Steve Carell please I'm begging you to come in and do this uh, I said, okay, just, all right, you owe me. And then I had a lot of fun. And Steve was great. You know, I just want to tell you something. You hear all these rumors about people. Someone told me, Steve Carell, oh, you can't even look at him on set. And he's got all this attitude. You can't believe what people say. And they no. should be talking. The sweetest guy ever. And totally into his work. He was talking to Mimi, the director, all the time. And well, I think the character would, I just thought that was fabulous. He's great. He seems like it though. I mean, he seems kind. Like that's, I have a, a cousin who's a makeup artist and he's worked on a ton of A-listers. And he said, you know, he's like, I, I can't, he's like, I don't want to gossip. But he said, what I will tell you is when you get a sense, you're watching that actor or that actress and you see them on awards shows and you see them on their things. And if you get the sense of if they're kind or not kind, you're probably right. Right. And it's just like, that's all he would say. And I, and I said a couple names and I'm like, this person seems really nice. He's like, yep. And I'm like, that person doesn't seem so nice. And he was like, yep. And you know, it's like, Steve Carell seems nice. Come on. Yeah. He's a really sweet guy. He's a great guy. And I had a lot of fun, you know, always have fun on a set. And then I I did uh, think, did you ever see the show Better Things? I love that show. You know, I love Pamela Adlon. I love her so much. Well, I did a play with Pamela a hundred years ago and I played her aunt and we had so much fun. So uh, when I got uh, on the show, she was like, you know, she's, she's played my aunt, this one, oh, you know. But it was so sweet to see her again. I hadn't seen her in so many years. So that's, you know, it's such a community. The thing I love about Better Things is, A, I think she's a genius. And she, like, there's certain shows that you love because you know you could never in a million years write them. Yeah. And that's one of those shows is I'm like, I could never figure out the plotting and the, the thing, the way she does it. It's just, it's, oh, it's she's own. So, and it's so real. That's what she's about. So it's gotta be real. I just have to tell you this before we would go on to do a performance in the play, we were back in the green room, all, all three of us. It was uh, uh, Carol Ann, uh, myself, her and, and, and the one who played my daughter. And then she played my niece anyway. So she, she just started dating this guy and she'd be on the phone before we go. Oh, I can't talk now, but I love you. 
and I'm doing the show now, but I'll call you right after. And then, of course, she's married, had two kids, and now divorced. So when I called, I said, had I just hung up your phone, I could have saved you a whole divorce. So, So she's real down to earth, real down to earth. Yeah. I can chime in to speak Please do. about representation. And I'm wondering, um, do you see what happened? I, I, I just caught the periphery of it with Halle Berry um, in the last couple of days and representation. So I think there's a reckoning to be had where we have like um, different abilities and um, gender identity and all this other stuff. I think we're going to see a real switch to actors you know it used to be you know you played somebody who was delayed or whatever and it was oscar fodder yeah i can put this on and and even you know wasn't felicity huffman um nominated for an oscar for transamerica so um yeah just something about representation that came to mind when you were talking yeah yeah i mean like we look at when leonardo dicaprio when what's eating Gilbert Grape? Grape, but he he was brilliant. He was fantastic. I actually thought he genuinely had downs until until because he wasn't a thing yet, and it wasn't until the next film came out and it was like, wait, that's that guy! Oh my god! But you know, uh, nowadays they want the real thing. Most, yeah, most and of I mean, the time. Yeah, and rightly Not so. Not all the time because is it the good doctor that guy plays an autistic, autistic uh, doctor? Yeah. But now uh, it's more the the fellow who created Good Doctor and his executive producer wrote the, that show because he has a son who's autistic. But um, but now they're trying to use the real thing of anything, you know. Yes, which if I think this can will, act, you know, yeah. but they have to be able to act. Yeah. Well, have you seen Rami? And that that guy, the guy that plays Steve, is what? Who would have thought before? hey, we, we're writing a role for a guy in a wheelchair. We're going to need an actor to act like he's disabled in like this way or whatever. That guy kills it. And he's so like, it's like, you know, the fact, like it just, it just, it's just that kind of like, if you just look around, you will exactly. find the people that, that can play that the role and are, you know, it's like talent can be anywhere. You just haven't looked yet. Well, you know, my good friend is the talent agent for all disabled actors. Oh. Any type of disability. Her son was in my film, Waiting for Ronald. Nice. He's got Downs, yeah. It's, I mean, this is what we were talking about last week with Munya, like, because she's Tunisian, Belgian, and she gets, you know, she'll go in for an Arab role and then be, like, told she's not Arab enough. And she's like, but I actually am Arab. And then, like, the, the person, someone will get the role and they're Hispanic. And she's like, or Latina. And she's like, that's but then she gets sent out for Latina roles as well. And she's just like, this is crazy. So I think representation, you know, it's, I'm glad that we're finally having this conversation and I'm glad that it's finally doesn't seem right to people anymore to have people play things that they are not. Yeah. I love that. And I coach all uh, disabled. I coach, um, all types, wheelchair, hard of hearing, or can't hear at all, or I coach my friend's clients, you know, so. Yeah. And um, that that was a good, that's always a good experience, and they have a good experience, so. You know, on Modern Family, Eric Stone Street plays a gay character, and he's straight. Right, and, um, right, right. I think that would be a different conversation in casting. I think so, too. Well, and if you think about 
when Will and Grace came on the air, it was the only thing of its kind. Right. So to have, you know, when they were casting, did they feel like they had to have, if they're going to cast two gay male characters, could, could they only get quote unquote, get away with one gay actor, you know, one out gay actor. And then the other one had to be, you know, a straight, and of course, both white men. I mean, how do you kind of wonder yeah. what was going on at the time? I mean, we look back at it now, we're like, yeah, this is just a total normally normal TV show. But at the time, yeah. at the time, it was huge. And I loved and that's something that's inter- incremental because at the time, it was huge that we had the representation of um, a girl and her gay best friend. And like they, they were that, that friendship that, you know, for me as a theater kid, like I was friends with all, most of my guy friends were gay. And so it's like, <laughs> To then have that representation of that relationship as a mainstream central relationship in a sitcom was so great. And so it's like, well, that was the step we made forward then. And then like, now it's like, okay, it's, now it's not enough. But at the time it was... Big, big, big. Yeah. I was in with central casting for a long time. I went out for a role and I was told to dress provocatively. So surprise. <laughs> um, the only time I wore this one pair of like five inch heels that I had, it killed my feet. But... I showed up and it was uh, Brett Ratner who was in the room and it was me and a bunch of other women who were six feet. I'm six feet tall. It was a bunch of really a room full of tall women. And he comes up to me and he goes, you know, talks about like not fighting, but like, you know, what are you, how are you tough kind of thing? And I'm I'm like, that's a weird question, but sure. And then it ends up coming back to like, were you born a man? And I was like, no do do I look like I was wait what why it was such a confusing question for me and later I found out that the character he was casting for was transgender and now I'm like why wouldn't you just put out a call for transgender actors because there are plenty of them like he could have had Laverne Cox and he instead was trying to cast straight women as transgender women and it was just like you know it's such a like it was recent enough that it's still like a surprising thing that happened, you know, but not, but you know, I think hopefully that conversation is continuing to shift and it won't, it will continue to shift in a positive direction. For Yes, I think it will. I definitely f- feel that it will. So my question is um, you were talking about your experiences in Georgia. We're all having conversations about uh, black lives matter and about a lot of other issues for being a white ally, did you develop any opinions about what works and what doesn't work? The way I thought about it is um, something has to be done about a situation and uh, you go and do it. And you, uh, blacks were with us, whites were with us. It wasn't, it wasn't so like, uh, how will we do this? It's like that place needs to be integrated now. Let's go. And so uh, we all went, but I, I did. We didn't feel divided in any way. We were trying to uh, bring this place into what's right and what's now. At that time, actually, my boyfriend was black. He he went to Morehouse and then went on to Howard. We didn't go to white clubs, so um, back then, because uh, it would be too fearful for him, you know, for us to go. But we, other than that. We had a job to do. We felt Georgia human, uh, Georgia Students for Human Rights. We would march. The KKK would be on the other side of the street marching. But we had a very specific uh, project to do, and that was to 
open up the town and, and have them be in the now and not in, in the past. But we just had that cause and we all just, you know, buddied up and got a group and did a sit-ins and all types of things. And, and we were very proud of it because we did see they had to change or, or nobody would go in that restaurant because we couldn't, we wouldn't move, you know? Wow. That's what I was going to ask is like, if you went into a restaurant that you were integrating, you know, and the day ended, the next time when you were walking by that restaurant was like it integrated or were they just like, well, those, those pesky kids are back are gone. We had had to go in a couple of times and and then we talked with them too, you know, and said that we're not going to let anybody come in to buy anything. Or if it was a drive-in, nobody's going to come to this drive-in. So you better think about that unless you're going to integrate your place. That's it. You know, and that's what, and we had that, you know, we would just tell, you know, we didn't have cell phones or anything or computers, but somehow we got the word out, let me tell you. So, and there were enough people that felt like we did and we could ruin a business. Not that we tried to ruin your business. We tried to open it up to serve all people and we did open it up and we were proud. Everyone hated us. Everyone hated us. I mean, except, you know, our group and stuff. But it was just, we didn't go for the rules and regulations that did not make sense or would hurt people. Forget it. I love that, that level. Just that, like, bravery, but also just, like, you can't do anything else. Like, of course. This is absurd. Of course we're going to do the right thing. And just. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you ever, did you ever see Jimmy? Jimmy, no. No, but Janice Joplin, I'll just tell you this really quick. When Janice was starting out with Big Brother, she was um, in uh, in New York, but upstate just a teeny bit like, you know, and it was a field. Well, of course, all my fr- uh, friends got in. Of course, I had a yellow VW bus and we were all stoned, let's face it. So then we got there and that was lucky that we got there and we come out <laughs> And she's there just standing in the field. You know, it's not like it's a theater or anything. And so she played, she sang, um, she sang one song. (laughs) She sat down and she pulled out a bottle of Southern Comfort and she said, Abe, I don't feel like singing. I feel like drinking. And we're like, what? (laughs) What do you want to do? You came to hear you sing. (laughs) And she drank for quite a while. And then I think she sang one more song or didn't I forget. We were so stoned, it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> we would sing all her songs. Who cares? I love her. That's my Janice Joplin thing, you know, because I adore her. Her yeah. and Jimmy. Ugh, I love her so much. Yeah. She had to have guts to do what she did. So Get out of Texas and be who you are and do your thing. They, yeah. I, they tried to suppress her, you know, to fit in. That's the worst mistake. Yeah. To fit in. Yeah. Talk about blazing your own path and not trying to fit in and not caring what anyone else thinks. And and at the same time, just dealing with the continual sexism and crap she faced, even from her own band, you know, it's just like, you guys realize you're nothing without her, right? No, they just kept. They didn't realize. But she was incredible. Yeah. Uh, I felt bad for her, you know? Yeah. I felt bad for her. She didn't. I hope somewhere she realizes how how beloved she is now. Yeah, t- unbelievable, isn't it? That's the key. Is that's like, don't be afraid. 
follow your dreams and be kind. Like that's what you yeah. bring such a, you bring such a kindness to everything. Yeah. And that's what we all need and that's what we should do. And yeah. If, if we could afford the rights, I would play us out with all you need is love, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I love you. Um, I will see you in Thanks. class on Sunday. Sunday. Next time on Hearthside Salons, writer Trisha Nelson knows there are more black stories that need to be told than narratives of suffering or criminality. She's written several pieces offering both classic and current black stories that you may have missed or should watch again. We'll talk about the importance of representation, the issue of the magical Negro trope, and what makes a worthwhile love story. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from PageCraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.